Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our deep dive show where we interview an expert or an analyst on a single stock. Uh, sometimes it'll be two analysts, but usually it's just one. Uh, and today we interview Nick Seipel, who's been a friend of the show. Uh, and we talk about WWE or Worldwide Wrestling Entertainment. Um, fascinating pitch because it's a company I haven't really looked at. Were there any highlights from the interview? I think, well, let me just pitch people to listen. And that is, this is very similar to Formula One from a unit economic standpoint. It seems cheaper, maybe. Well, cheaper. Yeah. I'm not stock. You can do, do your own valuation work, but very similar where it has almost this monopoly. There's competitors come, trying to come out sometimes, but it's basically a monopoly because it's a sports league. It's also entertainment. So it's scripted and all that good stuff. Uh, with, I just think it's a good pitch that Nick gave because. The, I don't know, the, the media rights stuff, the capital allocation, there's just a lot going in their favor. And it seems pretty cheap. Obviously not investment advice, but it, it gave us a great pitch. It, and if you like WWE, like this could be one of those fun stocks to own. Like I know that <laughs> if there was your favorite sports league that was public, like say Ryan, your favorite is, you know, maybe the Major League Soccer, or one of the European ones. If one of those is public, you'd probably have a little fun shares as well. This is one of those fun companies if you like these type of things, wrestling, UFC, whatever. Yeah. And it's fun just to understand how the business actually works and how they make money. Uh, but before we get to the interview, we want to talk about our partners. It's streamed by AlphaSense. They're an expert interview transcript library. This has served as a pretty good supplement to, I think, just about anyone's investment process. If you're not familiar with the uh, what Stream offers, basically, you're getting very candid conversations with industry experts and sometimes company insiders or ex-company employees, um, and you're really getting a good grasp on what a, sort of the ins and outs and uh, from someone who knows the business intimately well. And they cover industries like tech, consumer goods, industrials, real estate, literally, I would say pretty much every single industry. Probably have, oil and gas at this point. There's probably a oh, lot of people looking at that now. Yeah, definitely. And they have over 10,000 call transcripts, um, 300 expert interview interviews come out per week. So it's a bunch of new content as well, uh, but you've got a whole library to get through. So feel free to check them out. It's streamrg.co backslash CCM. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash CCM. Uh, go there, sign up for a 14-day trial. It's free. Use our promo code CCM. Uh, but without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. Today we are joined by Nick Seipel, now multi multi-time guest, recurring guest. Three or four times. Three yeah. or four times. He is a senior analyst at the Motley Fool Canada. Uh, and today we're talking about a company that it's one of those companies you probably don't think about uh, as a public company, but it's WWE or worldwide. Is it worldwide entertainment? I'm, World I'm, Wrestling Entertainment. World, World Wrestling. Wrestling Entertainment. WWE. Yeah. Happy to be here with you guys. I think this is only my second time on here. Maybe like ghost me 
came a couple times when I didn't uh, when I didn't know. But yeah, excited to be on here. Uh, you know, with you, I was on here a little over a year ago. We talked about GameStop and Match. I'm happy to talk about WWE uh, today with you. All right. Uh, and how did you come across WWE? Uh, well, two questions. How did you come across WWE? The like the entertainment brand, and then how did you come across it as a stock? Sure. Well, yeah, the WWE, the entertainment brand, obviously I was, I'm a nineties kid. I was born in 1993. So, uh, you know, I watched Stone Cold Steve Austin and the rock and undertaker and all those sorts of folks growing up. So certainly exposed to the brand. You can find like papers from when I was in like kindergarten talking about my favorite things was like WCW, um, and all that stuff. Um, and then kind of like a lot of people kind of lapsed from, uh, kind of paying attention to the brand for quite a while, got back into it um, when I was in law school because I needed something that, you know, all this like smart people talk um, at law school every day. I needed some like, you know, turn your brain off uh, type of content. So got back into WWE, I don't know, probably 2016, 2015 um, or so. Um, As a stock, um, you know, I've followed it more closely, I would say, you know, going 2018, uh, 2019 period. It was an interesting company to follow uh, for quite a while because of what they were doing on the you know direct-to-consumer streaming. They'd taken the WWE network. Traditionally, they'd sold, they'd sold their pay-per-views you know, through cable networks, um, that sort of thing. They had, they had brought their, their pay-per-views in-house to the WWE network. So it was an interesting kind of case study in, in this evolution um, of streaming and owning, owning your audience. But what, what it got interesting to me as an investment um, really was, was 2020. You had this big change in management at the end of uh, January 2020. So before the pandemic happened, you had the bottom of the fall out of the stock a little bit. It was down 20% in a day uh, when the former co-presidents left. Um, and that kind of signaled a shift in the strategy uh, for the company. And you really, that was double underlined in August 2020 when you had the new president of the company uh, get brought in, new chief Re- revenue officer as well, which is Nick Khan, which had been WWE's agent at CAA, had been the head of uh, the television department at CAA um, negotiated a lot of their their rights deals in the past and really kicked off this transition from you know WWE Network distributing some of their content in house to really becoming more of a licensing story, which is what has me excited about uh, the company today. And the uh, Brett was showing me this before we uh, jumped on the Zoom, but the CEO is that he's that like almost famous character from all the gifts on Twitter. Am I getting that right? Or the the founder of WWE, right? Vince yeah. McMahon. Absolutely. Vince, Vince McMahon is the largest shareholder uh, of the company. I think it's something like 37% of the shares outstanding he owns. It's also uh, you know, a cl- dual class structure. He controls uh, the company um, in a really significant way, has controlled the company all the way since I think it's the early 80s. Uh, he bought uh, WWE from his dad um, and kind of created the modern history of the business. So, so before Vince McMahon kind of took over WWE, it was a regional business. You had territories in you know the Northeast and the Southeast, and you know kind of across the country, you had Canadian uh, territories. And and you know Vince McMahon took over the company, kind of barnstormed uh, across the country on the back of cable rights deals, TV, that sort of thing. Really um, monopolized the business. So by the end of uh, you know the year, you know the early two thousands, you had WWE. That was all that was left. There was Monday Night Wars. Um, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, that, that's Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon still still running the company today. He's the one who kind of took WWE from this from this regional brand to now this global wrestling empire, where there really isn't a close number two. Okay, and how does the business actually work? Because it is it doesn't seem super intuitive. Like when I when I first think about WWE, like how they make money. Um, so kind of how does it work, and what exactly are investors buying into? 
Sure. I mean, the, the analogy that I would use uh, for WWE is WWE is like a superhero universe. So you think about Marvel has this all this collection of different characters. You know, you've got Spider-Man and all, all those sorts of things. And you build stories around these characters. Um, and, uh, and WWE is the same way. You have characters like Andre the Giant, The Undertaker, Stone Cold Steve Austin. If you look at The Rock and John Cena, they currently play superheroes on TV. So uh, you have this superhero universe that is built up over time that is monetized. You know, if you think about Marvel was monetized historically uh, through comic books, WWE monetized historically through TV programs. So if you look at 2019 numbers, which you know normalizes us to live events being happening, those sorts of things, media rights for 77% um, of the company's revenue and essentially all of their OBITDA, which is their kind of their EBITDA type number. So the, the main way that that kind of the superhero universe gets monetized historically is the TV programming. So, you know, the, the flagship TV programs, Monday Night Raw has been on TV since 1993, is the longest running episodic TV program um, in the US. You've also got SmackDown that's been on TV since 1999. Those are kind of the core drivers um, of the business. You've also got, I mentioned WWE Network, which is the historical kind of pay-per-view business. They had run that in-house until 2021 when they licensed that out to Peacock. Um, um, so, so you know the, the rights, the media rights business, the, those types of, of programming are the main driver of the business. You've also got live events, so this is where they tour around, and you can actually go to the event like you would go to a baseball game, that sort of thing. About thirteen um, percent of revenue um, in two thousand nineteen, and five percent of OBITDA. It's essentially the way I think about the live events side of the business. It's almost marketing. So, you know, if you want to go back to the um, to the superhero analogy, right, what really pays the bills or what gets you to buy the comic book is when Spider-Man fights the Green Goblin. But there's lots of pages in that comic book where he's out fighting the guy who like stole someone's purse on the street. That's kind of what I think about for the live events business is you have, you know, if you're a kid, you can go see these superheroes in your town live and in person. Um, and, and that's really what kind of the live events business offers. It's kind of a marketing side of the business that, um, that, that pays for itself. And in addition, in addition to that, the third segment that you look at is consumer products and merchandise in the same way with, you know, you go to the, you go to the baseball game and you buy the Jersey, same thing with WWE, massive kind of t-shirt business. It's about 9% um, of revenue and 50, 15% um, of OBITDA. So, you know, kind of looking at the, the main drivers of, of the business and profitability as an investor, um, the main driver of the company is is media rights. And so the way you're going to make money is a couple of ways. So number one, increasing rights fees for, for the existing media rights. So uh, the current deal uh, for Monday Night Raw and SmackDown was renegotiated. Um, it went into place in October 2019. Rights fees increased 3.6x versus the prior levels um, whenever that deal kind of went into place. You look at, um, at in 2021, I mentioned uh, WWE Network. They licensed that out to, to Peacock. That deal's rumored at $200 million a year. Um, and if you look out um, this year here in 22, uh, WWE is, is in the process of running that similar um, WWE Network playbook, and not just in the US, but, but across the world. So they sold some rights in Southeast Asia to, to a Disney subsidiary. That, that's really the story today is increasing rights fees on, on the existing programming, both kind of SmackDown and WWE Network, and also expanding um, the the scope of, of content the company um, creates. So they're moving into, they've got reality shows. Uh, so they have Ms. and Mrs. on the USA Network. They got Total Bellas on E. They have sitcoms. So, uh, so you've got The Young Rock is now a sitcom on NBC that WWE is uh, executive producers of. You've got biographies. So, so A&E brought back their biography programming in, in 2021. Some of their highest programming uh, was, was uh, made in concert with WWE. They signed an exclusive 
podcast arrangement with Spotify um, in 2021, Spotify and, and the Ringer. Um, you've also got the video games. They're in their last year of their uh, of their deal with Take Two to produce the WWE video game. Um, lots of kind of different um, arenas for content. The last one I'll mention is interesting is they have a, a docu-series about Vince McMahon and kind of the history of WWE moving to Netflix. So lots of tailwinds behind the existing content, increasing rights fees, but also the ability to sell lots and lots and lots of uh, additional, I guess, adjacent content um, as well, which is, which is a big growing opportunity for the company. The uh, reality shows doesn't really strike me as the logical next step when I think WWE, but it no, sounds. You're, I, I think Ryan, you're exposing how you uh, don't know much about WWE. Apparently, that is the logical next step because that brings me to this next question, which is WWE kind of borders the line between sports league and entertainment. What are for anyone that doesn't know, what are the similarities and differences between something maybe like the NFL, MLB, NBA, or Formula One, UFC, all that stuff? Sure. So uh, similarities are, are in the sense that you have live programming that they you have to tune in live to really get the value of, of viewing the event um, as compared to, uh, you know, uh, the office. You can watch infinite reruns, right? WWE Raw reruns don't have the same type of uh, type of value in the same way that, that, that sporting events do. Uh, similarly, uh, there's, a, there's a whole lot of, of kind of adjacencies and, and license, licensing opportunities, whether that's selling jerseys or, or stadium sponsorship. Those sorts of things. WWE has done a lot of stuff with integrating uh, things like um, they did a special integrating integration with the Red Notice Netflix show where you had some like special part of the production where you have, where you have integration there. So there's lots of licensing and IP, IP opportunities, um, but some some big important differences that are, I think, in WWE's favor as compared to um kind of traditional sports leagues. One, it's year round. There's no off season, right? So you don't just have while the season is going on, uh, your audience engaged, you have your audience engaged year round. Now, of course, there's going to be more engagement around WrestleMania season in the same way that there's more engagement in football around Super Bowl season. Uh, but you have 52 weeks a year um, of content. Another big difference is when you look at who owns the IP and who you're dealing with when you want to make these marketing marketing uh, relationships or advertising relationships, or if you just want to, you know, use their use their um, kind of clips uh, in kind of digital content, that sort of thing. Uh, in the MLB, you're dealing with 30 plus different owners of individual teams. In the NFL, you're dealing with a similar number soccer, that sort of thing. In WWE, you're dealing with one company dealing with one company that is majority controlled by one guy. Um, so it makes things a lot more simple when it comes to licensing out um, content as compared to dealing with some of these other leagues. And there's also just a less conflict, right? About who owns what, um, what does the MLB own versus what do the Yankees own? That sort of thing. It's really just one company, one franchise. And then last thing um, is, uh, you know, spoiler alert, uh, it's scripted. They know what's going to happen. Um, so oh, it really helps you uh, really? when it comes to creating stars um, in the industry, right? You don't have to wait for Conor McGregor to show up for your sport to really explode. You get to kind of pick huge, uh, huge stars and you can pick folks outside of uh, of wrestling to try to try to engage those audiences. So you can look at, at WrestleMania this year, right? If you want to engage UFC fans, you have Ronda Rousey and Brock Lesnar are both were both headliners at WrestleMania. If you want to engage WWE fans that maybe watched in the 90s that don't watch today. You've got Stone Cold Steve Austin and Edge both made big appearances there. And then if you want to deal with people who don't watch uh, sports or, uh, or wrestling at all, you had Logan Paul and Johnny Knoxville wrestling on the main card. So you're able to attach um, and specifically target audiences in a way that you can't do uh, with traditional Sports leagues. Last thing I'll say too, if you look at if you look at engagement, um, WWE gets more engagement. Um, so uh, there were there were some headlines came out. Uh, Convivo, which is an analytics firm, 
put some uh, uh, some data out in the past couple of weeks. A two night WrestleMania weekend got 2.2 billion impressions across social media platforms as compared to 1.8 uh, billion for the Super Bowl. If you look at um, platforms like YouTube, WWE is one of the top 10 biggest YouTube channels in the world, the largest one in sports. If you look at Facebook, they have the largest Facebook channel, you know, uh, page in sports. If you look at TikTok, largest TikTok page um, in sports. So uh, lots of engagement. Um, uh, I would, you could argue there's more engagement on the WWE content than there is in, on some of these uh, traditional sports content. Uh, when you look at across all platforms, not just, you know, TV, that sort of thing. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Yeah, that leads into this next question. And I think the big thing that people think about, you mentioned uh, you got into it because of The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin in the 90s. But people kind of think about that. Okay, what's the risk there? Talent is super key for these this league or entertainment system. Um, what are the risks of losing top wrestlers to retirement or like you mentioned, do they just have kind of that creative funnel of new wrestlers able to come in? But I, I honestly think personally, I feel like that's a big risk because you don't know if that person is new, if they're going to land with a, a certain audience that they want. Sure. I, so thinking about this question, the, the analogy that, that comes to mind for me. So I talk about the Marvel analogy when it comes to this kind of content universe and you build these characters that you can kind of sell merchandise and kind of other other shows off of. I think when you think about uh, the, the talent part, the, the comparison that comes to mind for me is like Saturday Night Live. So you think about Saturday Night Live as a live show built around segments where people come on and kind of do their thing and, and, and get off the, the show. Um, Saturday Night Live also does very well on, on YouTube. Um, so there's there's some similarities when you think when you think about how the, the, the program is. And also, they've ran for a similar uh, period of time. Um, but Saturday Night Live, the, 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 we always have this conversation of like, how are you going to place replace Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi? How are you going to replace Eddie Murphy? How are you going to replace whatever Adam Sandler, Norm Macdonald, those sorts of things? How are you going to place Tina Fey? I think you have the same kind of pattern in wrestling. So if you were in the '90s, looking back to the '80s, you would say, how are we going to replace Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan? If you were in the you know, 2000s, looking back to the late 90s, you'd be say, saying, how do we replace Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock? Today, you're saying, how do you replace John Cena? I think it's the nature of this type of art form or this type of entertainment is that, you know, when you have an ensemble type cast, there's going to be kind of uh, peaks and valleys um, to the business. Um, so it, it, I think you could have you could have asked this same question for the past 20 plus years, both in WWE and, and in the kind of SNL area. Um, but, uh, you know, should we be concerned about talent? One, I think in the near term, there's lots of ability to bring folks back. We just saw um, we just saw Stone Cold Steve Austin again come back and headline WrestleMania and draw significant um, audiences. There's lots of ability to kind of draw from the existing kind of superstar base. Um, another thing that I, I think is, is worth noting is this is a family business. So, you know, The Rock was the biggest star 20 years ago, the biggest star in WWE, the unified grand champion um, is Roman Reigns, who is The Rock's cousin in real life. And there has been lots and lots and lots of teases made um, that if you look at WrestleMania next year, um, we could see Roman Reigns versus The Rock at WrestleMania. In, um, it's in Los Angeles, which is the same place uh, where the Super Bowl was held this year, where The Rock came out and did a promo. So I think there's lots of ability kind of uh, within um, kind of existing family 
uh, relationships to 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 um to bring new audiences. You saw you see um Cody Rhodes is also uh, a significant. They just brought Cody Rhodes in for from AEW, and he's one of the the biggest stars in WWE today. He is part of this kind of family um, dynasty. So I think that there's some of these existing relationships you can tap into. But the other thing that I think is interesting as well is so WWE historically has had lots of these kind of family relationships to draw from. Uh, the new way that they're kind of looking to um. So I guess access talent is one of the big regulatory changes, I guess, that we had in, in 2021 was in college sports. You had name, image, and likeness rules open up that allows brands to sign deals with amateur athletes uh, to, to you know, get access to the name, image, and likeness. And so WWE has launched their next in-line program where they're going to form uh, name, image, and likeness relationships with significant college athletes to kind of groom these folks to be the potential next generation of WWE stars. The biggest kind of most high profile uh, example of that right now is Gable Stevenson, who has just won the gold medal in, in wrestling at the Olympics and appeared at, at WrestleMania, um, kind of following a similar pattern of what you saw with Kurt Angle 20 years ago, where he, he won uh, the gold medal um, at the at the Atlanta Olympics, then became a huge star um, in wrestling. I think there's lots of opportunities uh, with this name, image and likeness um, relationships to to kind of bring existing athletes um, into the fold and kind of open up a new a new pipeline uh, for talent. So that's another area uh, where you see potential. You think about it for like a track runner or you know a weightlifter or a wrestler. There's really not a lot of outlets for those talents after you kind of finish with amateur uh, amateur sports at the college level. And, and WWE is going to give folks you know a significant outlet to to make big money. I think that you know. Uh, uh, the lowest, uh, so uh, Triple H, um, Paul Levesque, who is who's a significant executive at, at WWE, had, was interviewed pretty recently, said something like the the bottom of the WWE roster is making something like a quarter million dollars a year. So this is, you know, big business compared to what your alternatives might be, you know, leaving from college wrestling, going into uh, into the real world. So that's another potential pipeline uh, for talent. What are the what are WWE's costs? Is it primarily paying talent like like what I guess what are the economics look like? Sure. So uh, the, the most profitable segment of the business is um, uh, is the media rights side of the business. So so in 2019, you're looking at at 30% OEBITDA margins. That's their kind of EBITDA figure they use. That's expanded significantly. I think it's over over a thousand basis points um, in 2021. Um, uh, so uh, so so that that's really where your most profitable segment. You you have similar um, profit margins on the on the 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 merchandising segment of the business, t-shirts, that sort of thing. However, um, that's a little bit up in the air because just in, like I think in the past two or three weeks, they signed a deal with Fanatics, which is across uh, apparel, uh, NFTs, uh, trading cards, all, all those sorts of things where they're going to outsource the um, uh, the apparel side of the business. And so they, they're, they're not going to carry those costs anymore. They're licensing that, that out to a third party that will that will uh, uh, produce um, the content, but so, so the, the main the main costs for the business are production, right? You have uh, a live show that runs every week all year long that travels all across the world. The travel Saudi Arabia, UK, all across the US, um, and it's a really really significant uh, uh, production. So that's why you saw um, in in uh, 20, uh, 2020 and twenty twenty one. Um, you cut out a whole lot of cost out of the business, um, but because you didn't have to take that show on the road anymore, they were just in their kind of um, their performance center. So, um, you know, uh, the highest margin part of the business um, is the licensing 
part, uh, the costs there are, are, are relatively fixed over time. You're putting on the same show. As those fees increase, you see margins expand in a significant way, which is, again, why you saw that, that big margin expansion I, I kind of cited um, to start off. You that might not have the, yeah, yeah, yeah. You might not have the answer to this one, I guess, but like, what do the, uh, what does the talent make? Like, what does an individual make an in income that's maybe one of the big stars for WWE? Is it like in, in, uh, are we talking like millions, tens of millions? What, what does it look like? Yeah, it's it's in the millions range. I mean, the, the numbers aren't public in the same way that you would have it for like a baseball player or, or, right. or that sort of thing. But these are these are big chunky. I mean, think about what UFC fighters make. I, I think you'd be in you'd be in a similar in a similar ballpark, and actually have a similar conversation, right? If UFC gets criticized a lot for not paying their fighters, you know, enough, even though again you have this you know quarter million dollars low end salary, and UFC has a similar kind of a, a setup there. So, um, you know, talent costs are, are, are a portion. Um, but again, you think about it too, uh, where's the market, the, the, top, the top end market for, for wrestling talent? It's really WWE and then AEW, which is their, the kind of upstart, you know, challenger. It's funded by, uh, by Tony Khan, which is, uh, you know, part of the Khan family that owns the Jaguars, that sort of thing. There's only real two, really two bidders out there um, for, um, you know, for WWE, you know, for, for wrestling. Um, talent. So, you know, I think it's a little bit less of a um, competitive market than it might be in, in sports that than kind of traditional sports. Okay. And the, uh, the live events business obviously grew pretty fast in 2021, especially comped against 2020. Um, how big do you think that can be as a percentage of the business moving forward? Will it be, you said, I think it's at 13% of overall revenue. Do you see that being a larger chunk? Um, well, yeah, so, so that's the 2019 numbers. Obviously, if you look at uh, 21 and 20, those numbers are lower as a percentage of overall revenue, right? Because 2020, all events were canceled. And then 2021, you only swallowed up kind of the back half of the year. So if you just want to extrapolate out to we only got half a year of live events revenue in 21, and we're going to get a full year in 2022, that's a pretty quick route to a double. Um Part of that, uh, or, you know, kind of just returning to trend. Um, part of that is um, in, in 2020, um, they missed all of their Saudi Arabia events. And in 2021, uh, they only got one of the two. And those events are somewhere in the range of 40 to $50 million uh, per event. Um, there's been some speculation. If you listen to the earnings call, uh, Nick Khan has said that they may try to get three events, um, three Saudi Arabian events in 22. If that's the case, then not only do you return to trend um, but you also throw in another, you know, $35, $40 million of revenue on top. Um, so I think that there's room for upside um, there on, on live events. The other thing that, that's interesting is they're um, uh, just in the past week or so, they announced that they're going to hold a stadium event in the UK, which is their first kind of big major pay-per-view event um, in the UK in 30 years. And they had more claims for that in the first couple of days than they saw for, for WrestleMania. So yeah, oh. there's lots of demand for, for events and lots of ability to do kind of larger events outside the U S they've talked about, you know, uh, has talked about moving away from arena events to doing more kind of um, stadium size events. So, you know, Super Bowls at SoFi, SoFi stadium, again, this, this UK event's going to be, going to be a stadium event. Um, so there is potential um, not only kind of for events to return, but also for these larger events for them to be, to be larger, uh, you know, <laughs> duh. But but for 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 things like uh, you know SummerSlam and things like that, moving from moving from an arena to a stadium, making those events bigger. So I think you're going to return to trend, um, and maybe even a little bit uh, a little bit more on the live event side. But again, that's not 
I mean, money is money. It's great. It's great to make money, but but the real driver of the business, the real kind of area where you're going to see um, you know significant profit increases is going to be on the rights, the, the media rights fees. So we talked about in you know the story in um, in 2020 was that you had the new um, Raw and SmackDown rights rights fees kick in. Uh, the story in 20 and in 21 was that you had uh, WWE license the network to Peacock. So basically got out of the direct to consumer business um, in the US. I think the story here um, in 22 is going to be getting out of that direct to consumer business on a global basis. They signed a deal. I think I mentioned earlier, a deal in Southeast Asia with with Disney. I think you're going to see lots of those types of deals um, signed uh, across the world um, at a higher rate than than what they had been getting previously and also at at lower cost because you no longer have to host video in-house, that sort of thing. So you strip some cost out and, and, and also you get a bigger audience too. One thing that's Worth noting with the with the Peacock deal is you had 1.5 million subscribers um, in the U.S. to WWE Network, and if you look at the numbers, you know uh, um, through 21 um, on Peacock, is you had three and a half million people engaged with WWE content. So you've got people engaging on the platform, you know, more than double. You've got the cost that it that it cost the company to reach them going down, and you have the amount they're getting paid to send it out going up. That's obviously. Um, good for the business. The other thing that um, you'll see this year is, is the second day rights for, for Raw and SmackDown. So if you want to go back and watch it the second day, Hulu holds those rights today. Um, those are going to be um, up for you know, resale here in, in, um, in 22. Um, and so you'll expect those to come up, up for, um, for negotiation. Um, and then uh, they've got, um, hold on, I've got it in my, in my, um, in my notes here. The company has over a dozen scripted and unscripted uh, projects um, sold based on WWIP that we have uh, up for sale um, this year. So there's lots of potential to, again, continue to sell more content, like The Undertaker is coming out with a podcast, that sort of thing. Um, and so that's really where you're going to see um, you know, more revenue being driven um, in the near term. Um, and, and also um, also this year, um, we're going to get a full year of that Peacock impact um, on earnings because the Peacock transition didn't happen until you know WrestleMania season Last year, and if you um, kind of read the tea leaves of the company, the, the revenue recognition on the um, on the Peacock deal is is lumpy, kind of built around you know the WrestleMania a part of the year. So so you'll see kind of higher rights fees pull through on the Peacock deal this year, and you also have lots of new um, both new content the company is selling and the the ability to uh, uh, to, to run a similar playbook to what they ran in the U.S. Um, abroad. And then before you know it, we'll be looking out. Um, you know the the that Ron Smack deal that I mentioned um, that, that was up 3.6x versus the previous um, previous rate that that kicked in in October 2019 and was a five year deal. Um, so that means it's going to end in October 2024, which means you're probably looking mid 2023 next year when you maybe see some headlines leaking out about uh, what the new rates could be. Um, for uh, for Raw and SmackDown, and again, that's coming after what I think is going to be probably the biggest WrestleMania ever, because there's lots and lots of signs out there um, that The Rock is going to come back. So, if, if that's the case, um, then then there should be lots and lots of upside um, for rights fees coming into um, you know in, in the next year or so. Um, and also, again, I mentioned they they, they licensed out um, the merchandise business. So, in theory, you should see uh, the merchandise business revenue go up and their costs go down. Um, because they outsourced it, so I, I think that there's lots of room again to just squeeze more money out of their existing um, their existing media rights, and then to just add more, you know, uh, fuel to the fire when it comes to to new content. 
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. There are some monthly expenses you just can't get away from, like insurance. You might be looking at your expenses thinking you're going to have to pause on your DIY project, stop collecting vinyl, or even give up your daily coffee fix to have great insurance. Talk about a nightmare. It's a good thing State Farm knows everyone has a budget and they have a range of options, like insuring your ride and your home with surprisingly great rates on both. With State Farm, you can also personalize your policy so you get the coverage you need at a price that lets you keep up with your projects, add to your vinyl collection, and continue to enjoy your coffee habits. So forget about giving up what you love to have great insurance. For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. All right. We mentioned, uh, I forget the name, I think it's AW or AEW, uh, the other league. That's the direct competitor, but who does WWE really compete with? Because is it just trying to get as many people to switch it on, like say on a Monday Night Raw or watching the replays or whatever? It, are they, are, is it generally just competing for people's time? Yeah, I mean it's 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 an entertainment business. I think you think of it as a as a TV show. So um, you know the companies that it might be competing with would be like the discoveries of the world and the other sports leagues and 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 things like that. I mean YouTube I, again. I mean I wouldn't say WWE is competing with YouTube. WWE is a significant player on YouTube, but but just other kind of yeah avenues um, for, for for people's time. How has uh, like the transition from linear TV to connected TV? impacted WWE? I know you kind of touched on some of the deals they've signed. Has it been, have they been a beneficiary of that or has it hurt them at all? Yeah. So, so I would say that they're, they're a beneficiary. So across the board, uh, what, what all these streaming companies are trying to do is they're trying to get as many eyeballs as they possibly can onto their platforms. We're, we're definitely at a land grab when it comes to uh, uh, streaming. You got lots of these, you know, whether it's Peacock or or Netflix or Apple is now trying to get into the sports game. Apple's got is doing baseball rights, and there's rumors that Apple is going to go get um, NFL Sunday ticket. All of these platforms are looking for content that will bring an audience along with it and will keep people engaged um, on the platform. And so WWE, that's part of why you've seen um, sports rights increase uh, the way they have. I mean, if you look across the board, um, ratings are going down, but what companies are willing to pay to get access to those audiences um, are going up. And WWE is in that that same type of bucket as sports league. So if you go by, when Peacock went and made the deal with WWE, they got access to, to an audience of people that will follow that brand wherever they go that need to tune in and, and see WrestleMania when it's when it's live or, or that sort of thing. So that's that's really what, what WWE is offering. All those numbers that I listed out earlier about you know the size of their audience, they're they're an arms dealer to these various uh, streaming properties. Um, and so I think they're in a good spot because you know I, I would I think it's fair to say ten years from now there's not going to be as many streamers um, competing as there are today. I um, mean those streamers want content um that that make them must have and wwe for a certain subset of people is that type of content right so like there wasn't an espn plus 10 years ago that might be willing to pay up to get more and more people onto that service and wwe could get them what say i mean they're with peacock now but say i don't know five years down the line wwe could get them three million new subscribers right away something like that yeah that that's essentially the, the exchange um that, that, that you're looking at is the wwe offers access that audience and folks are, are, are trying to pay um, to get access to that. I mean, that's kind of what what it would have been in the past um, on TV as well. Why are you paying for rights 
to Monday Night Raw because you want people to tune in and watch Monday Night Raw and, and look at your ads um, and those and those sorts of things. Um, and, and I think it's an important part of the the thesis um, for the company because I, I think one of the potential outs that you have as a shareholder is that the company gets acquired. There's some signals that that may happen. They've they've really uh, kind of trimmed a whole lot of fat when it comes. Uh, to the, um, the the talent on the roster, you've also got um, significant amounts of money getting put into a, a new headquarters that will um, be done at the end of 2022. Um, and it's my suspicion that when that new headquarters is done at the end of 2022, and they have this huge WrestleMania in 2023, and we reach the period where it's about time to renegotiate those rights deals, it would be an apt time uh, for the company to maybe uh, sell to one of these streamers, maybe Peacock, one of these others. Vince McMahon is pushing you know, 80 years old. So it'd be a natural time for him to exit. And if you look at private market valuations, um, you know, uh, UFC in 2016, uh, Endeavor bought half of the um, half of the company for $3.8 billion at about seven times gross revenue. WWE today is something like $4.3 billion. So if you think WWE is worth at least as much as UFC was in 2016, there's basically no downside. Um, to the stock price today, if you want to value it at the same revenue multiple that UFC was valued at, um, which was uh, which was something like seven times gross revenue, that puts WWE's valuation today at that multiple at seven to ten billion dollars. So again, that's like you know fifty percent upside if you just want to go off private market. Um, and again, I think there's lots of reasons to believe that costs are coming down, both from you know outsourcing the network, outsourcing uh, merchandising, finishing the. Um, the headquarters, that sort of thing, um, and and revenue going up. That there's lots of reasons to uh, to believe the company is going to be more strong uh, going forward. But if the market doesn't, uh, the private market will still pay you, and that's uh, that's why I think it's an interesting um, investment possibility today. Because there's lots of stories that you can tell about upside for the business, whether it's moving to stadium events or you know this next kind of rights deal. If we see another triple in in rights fees, or you know opportunities to Again, sell more merchandise. They sign an NFT deal uh, with um, with Fanatics. They have an NFC, NFT partnership with Fox. All these other opportunities to license um, their merchandise. Again, if you look at the company, whether it's for Saudi Arabia events too, um, and then you go back and look at the company, and it's trading at what I would say is um, you know below where where it should go in the private market. So there's an upside story to tell, and there's not much of a downside story to tell. What does uh, growth look like for them? Have they? Can you maybe put some numbers on it just to contextualize it? Have they been growing the top line? It sounds like they have, but uh, just to maybe get some context. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, and if you give me one second, I can pull up um, my notes here too. But, but yeah, I mean, 20, um, 2021 was a record year for earnings um, and OEBITDA. Um, twenty twenty. Uh, excuse me, 2021 was a record year. 2022, they're projecting um, another record um, as well. Um, so hold on, I'll give, you, I'll give you the exact numbers. Just give me, give me a second to pull up my- uh, Is it, my is it typically, uh, I'll let you pull them up, but uh, like in my mind, it's maybe a little lumpy. Is like growth, would that be right? Or is it maybe more uh, since it's year round, I guess. And I know 2020 right. is kind of a blip of a year, but- uh, I guess, yeah, just w- what does growth look like? Yeah, I mean, the, the, pre- the, the main driver of, of growth is, the, um, is these rights deals, right? So, so, you know, you had this big increase. So, for example, when they negotiated the new, um, the new Raw and SmackDown rights deals uh, a couple of years ago that went into effect in, in 2019, you had rights fees, it was 3.6x 
versus the previous rate. Um, and they were going to get paid at this rate on this negotiated deal for you know five years. And then we'll see another big, huge, likely lumpy increase um, in revenue. So, you know, as far as the main drivers of, of the business, which is this, um, which is the media rights deals, that's going to be the, the increases in it are going to be lumpy based on, um, based on those, um, contracts. You said it was around $4.3 billion was the valuation today. What are they kind of just, what are they earning? So maybe there's, uh, like, I guess what's the multiple. So people have an idea. Yeah, so right now uh, we're somewhere in the range of like 14 times uh, the OEBITDA okay. numbers. Um, we're in the range of kind of forex revenue. Um, yeah, and you're and you're projecting um, you know a 10 to 15 percent increase in in OEBITDA um, in 2022 off of those 21 numbers as you return back to again full scale live events, the full effects of the Peacock deal. Th- those sorts of things. So you're going to see another 10 to 15% increase in their kind of operating earnings metric um, here in, in 20 in 21 um, and, and um, excuse me in 22. And, and then again, um, part of the lumpiness too is on the cash flow production. So capex here in in 22 is projected at 280 to 310 million dollars, 230 to 255 million dollars of that um, is the headquarters. So you're going to have you know a little bit understated. Um, Cash flow generation here in 22 as they finish up the headquarters production. So, uh, um, so, so that's another thing to think about as well. That's that's weighing on um, the amount of cash flow that the company um, can produce, but still increasing um, earnings. All right, and we mentioned valuation a bit. Anything else? Any other metrics on that that people should know about, or is it just really revenue, OEBITDA, cash flow? That's pretty much it. I mean, I would also say um, you could also just look uh, the company. So I mentioned, um, you know, the big transition of the business model really started at the end of, of January uh, 2020 um, when you had the transition in, in ownership and you had the, um, um, you know, Nikon end up being brought in. The company's a way, way, way better business today. You've stripped out a whole bunch of costs. You've outsourced. Um, you've outsourced a decent chunk. Um, uh, of the kind of consumer side of the business, and you're down way, way, way um, significantly from where it was a, a number of years ago. So, I, you know, I don't know why the market is not particularly excited about the business, but the, the quality of the business has increased significantly the past several years and will increase going forward. Um, last thing I'll say too, and this is just like a common sense thing. Um, so I mentioned Nick Khan, president of the company, chief revenue officer, previously had been WWE's agent at CAA, had the, been the one who negotiated those new Raw and SmackDown rights deals. All those sorts of things. Um, uh, sports agents—they um, have a reputation for wanting to make money, and for that being a, a very significant motivation for why they joined um, the company. Um, I think it's telling that he joined the business and is and is kind of running the business uh, still today. Um, and, and I think, again, given that the entire thesis around the business that I'm kind of telling you today is that you can squeeze more and more value out of those existing rights deals. The fact that you have somebody like that who is highly financially motivated um, that is running the show, I, I think gives me a little bit of a solace as well. Yeah, it's interesting. They're still in the transition period. I hadn't really kind of forgot about that. But last thing before we get to the final question, they're buying back stock. Seems pretty rapidly. I didn't run really the numbers. What are your thoughts on that? Is that a positive signal for you on their, you know, new management's ability to return capital to shareholders? Just thoughts on the buyback in general. And do they have a dividend? Uh, I forget. Yeah, they do have a dividend and the dividend has been a, a significant use of cash um, 
Yeah. So if you look back, um, the last several years, they've bought back something like 4% of, um, of the stock. I mean, I think the company is, is, is cheap. And again, there's not like outside of, uh, you know, this headquarters, there's really not a lot of capital needs for the business. And you could argue the headquarters is not really a capital need for the business anyway. It's more of a kind of a, um, a vanity project. So I think that, you know, the, um, the, um, I think the buybacks are accretive, but again, the main driver for me of the business are that the rights fees are going up. The rights okay. fees are going up and the costs are going down. Um, and it's valued at um, what I would say is significantly below where the company would go in the private market. And so if you put those things together, it's just hard for me to figure out how you lose money on this. And there's lots of ways I can tell you that um, that you're going to make money or that the business can um, improve in quality over the next couple of years. All right, buybacks are a nice little cherry on top. Sorry, Ronnie, one more. You here. said you said not a lot of ways that this could go wrong. If it were to go wrong, what would be, I guess, the driver of that? Yeah, I mean, so if for some reason the kind of willingness to pay up for sports rights were to kind of evaporate from the market, if folks were to place a lower valuation on these types of of audiences, that would negatively affect. WWE. Um, I mentioned earlier Saudi Arabia. If you look at the, the live events part of the business, every one of those events is something like forty million dollars per event. Um, if there were to be some type of issue that prevented them from going to that uh, at that market, um, then that would that could significantly impact um, earnings power for the business. Um, you know, there's folks that talk about uh, attendance at some of the the so like the non um, kind of raw and SmackDown live events, so they call them house shows. Those those have been trailing down over time. There's folks that will tell you that that um, that's a signal to the the, the, the business quality um, is deteriorating. I, as I've said earlier, I, I think for me um, these are almost like marketing that pays for themselves. Um, these events, so it's not a, a, a big concern for me. But but there will be people that tell you um, that that's a sign that the kind of core, highly engaged audience is is kind of dissolving. Um, over time, um, and so that's a that's a potential risk as well. And then maybe the last one um, is AEW. So there's competition that has come on for WWE from I guess the early 2000s all the way until you know three four years ago. Basically faced no competition at least on the for the top end highest talent uh, of wrestlers. Now you have AEW that is that is competing, and they signed CM Punk, which is probably the biggest you know free agent signing in, in wrestling history in a, in a long period of time. They've, they've signed some, some big WWE stars like uh, Daniel Bryan, now known as, as Brian Danielson. So there's some competition um, for talent. Um, I think for, for my part, again, if you look at AEW ratings, even despite all those, those significant signings, they're still training, trailing WWE in a significant way and still has a lot, lot, lot of ways to go um, to monetize their content before they're a meaningful competitor. But you could tell a story about AEW kind of sapping away some of that core engaged wrestling fan audience and that there's not enough kind of casual fan audience there left for the business. Again, I don't think that's super likely, especially again, if you look at some of those social media metrics when it comes to fan engagement, but um, that is, um, that is a risk. And maybe, I mean, maybe if we just want to go way out there, um, <laughs> WWE wrestlers aren't unionized, um, but, uh, but folks in uh, MLB and, uh, NBA and all those other places are. So, you know, they haven't unionized yet. Um, maybe they will in the future, but you could tell a story about some type of labor unrest um, that could be a risk for that business. Again, I, I don't think that's likely, but it could happen. I think that's all the questions we have. Do you have any more? 
Okay. Well, that's going to do it uh, for any listeners that want to follow along with you. Uh, what's the best place to do that? I imagine it's Twitter, uh, but you also write, do you still write for uh, any, is it just full members now or? Everyone? Yeah. Yeah. So um, you can find me at investing Nick on, on Twitter. Um, yeah. And I also work for across the, uh, the Motley Fool Canada suite of services. So stock advisor, Canada, hidden gems, Canada, uh, dividend investor, Canada rule breakers, Canada, the whole, the whole Motley Fool Canada family of uh, of services. I, I write there, um, and then from time to time, I'll I'll appear on the um, on the Motley Fool podcasts and and Motley Fool Live. So you know, if you're a full member, um, especially in the ca- the Canadian world, you can find me. And if not, uh, just you know, reach out to me on Twitter. Happy to talk to you about WWE or nuclear energy or any of that other fun stuff. All right. Perfect. Well, that's going to do it. Brett and I want to remind our listeners that we are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or a recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. 